Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today as we always do by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology when we can, but also outside of GI as well. Today, we are very fortunate to have one of the nation's main thought leaders in value-based care and payment model design, Francois Debron, senior partner of the High Value Care Incentives Advisory Group, which advises provider and payer organizations on how to design and implement advanced alternative payment models to increase high-value care. He has spent close to two decades working to transform the U.S. healthcare system by improving the incentives for providers and consumers in order to encourage value-based decisions. Most recently, Francois was the Senior Vice President of Episodes of Care at Signify Health, where he led customer development of the Medicare Advantage, self-insured employer, and commercial payer markets. He also led most of the thought leadership activity at Signify. Prior to this, he was the executive director of the Healthcare Incentives Improvement Institute, which we all refer to as HCI3. It was a, a not-for-profit company that designed programs to motivate physicians and hospitals, again, to improve quality and affordability of healthcare delivery. It merged later with Altarum in December of 17, but it was responsible for creating and implementing the Bridges to Excellence program and Prometheus payment programs, which compensate and reward clinicians on episodes of care and performance measures. Francois holds a master's degree in economics and finance from the University of Paris and a master's degree in business administration from the Tuck School of Business Administration at Dartmouth. Finally, Francois was a subject matter expert at our most recent PTAC meeting, where he presented his model for specialty integration inside ACOs and other population-based total cost of care models. Welcome to the show, Francois. Well, thank you, Larry. And after such an introduction, I don't know what to say. Well, you know what? There's not much to say other than let's begin and you can answer my question. <laughs> How did you wind up working in the payment redesign space? Sure. And so I'm not a physician, as as, as you mentioned. When I graduated from business school, um, I got into real estate uh, management and other asset management, which is kind of traditional for folks who have uh, business degrees. And I fell into the healthcare world in part because after doing uh, real estate management, I, I started working in strategic planning for a marketing and communications firm. And one of the clients of that firm happened to be uh, a gentleman who was responsible for managing the benefits, healthcare benefits for active and retirees of the General Electric Company. GE covered 750,000 people across wow. the United States. And I didn't know anything about healthcare. I mean, I, I knew about as much as any individual who bought an HMO coverage in the mid 90s, that it was expensive, but that I didn't have to pay a whole heck of a lot after I paid my premium. But that's about it. And, and I remember the first meeting I ever had, I understood one out of every three words, and I could barely make out the context of what was being discussed because this industry is unbelievably replete with its own family of acronyms. 
So I ended up by having a crash course in uh, the uh, health insurance world, uh, the complexities of different types of network models, insurance coverages, uh, what self-insured means as opposed to fully insured, what an HMO is versus a PPO plan and so on and so forth. And so that's how I got into it, working for GE. And I really loved it. I thought it was intriguing. And I also thought it was completely nuts. Just absolutely crazy. And the more I got into it, uh, the more crazy I thought the industry was in terms of its organization and payment. And in 2000, I moved into a more formal position uh, working on different strategic initiatives for the healthcare benefits group. And I spent the first year almost walking into my boss's office saying, this can't be freaking true. (laughs) This, This cannot be correct. And, and Bob used to say, but Francois, it's healthcare. And I kept thinking, right? I mean, it just, it can't be the answer. The answer to everything in healthcare can't just be, well, this is the way it is because it's different. It's a different industry. You know, why don't any of the, the normal rules of business and economics and finance uh, function in, in, this, in this crazy industry? The natural tendency to try to create a little bit of order in what appeared to be complete chaos just was uh, an unbelievably uh, strong challenge. And um, and that's how I got into it. And I have to admit that I got lucky because in the early 2000s, all these large companies um, who also covered hundreds of thousands of people across the US really decided that it was up to them to react to the Crossing the Quality Chasm report that had just come out and to take responsibility for the mess that the country was in or partial responsibility and to try to do something. And so the collective action of all these employers, which led to the creation of the LeapFrog Group, led to the creation of Bridges to Excellence because we took the purchasing power of these employers in different communities and tried to do better with that purchasing power, engaging physicians and improving outcomes, paying them more, and ultimately moving towards trying to figure out a new way to pay that would make more sense, more sense for the physicians, more sense for the patients. And that's how we developed Prometheus Payment. And I think the, the my lack of being indoctrinated into the system from the get-go led me to being a natural skeptic about accepting the status quo and instead constantly trying to find solutions uh, to make it better. I learned something about my guests from this section of of the show. And as well as I know you, I never really knew how you made your journey. But what's incredibly interesting to me is, you know, John Lennon said, you know, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And, And so your initial foray was not into this, but you were able to come at the nuances of healthcare finance without preconceived biases from a clinical training. You were able then to apply your scientific approach to healthcare without being burdened by your previous, uh, you know, I, I still call them biases. So maybe that that explains why you've been able to be so innovative in your thoughts on uh, healthcare payment reform. Yeah, or at the very least, as as you mentioned, not having to drag an anchor that is all of those cultural, organizational, professional personal background that many people who grew up in the healthcare business end up by having. Just like if you start out as an engineer building rocket ships in, you know, the 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 1980s and 1990s, 
uh, it probably is is difficult to figure out a different way of doing it. And that's why you get SpaceX instead of NASA developing right. its own, its own right. thing. Right. <laughs> so sometimes someone coming from the outside, it comes around and says, well, this is nuts. <laughs> and, and boom, you get SpaceX. So you mentioned most of your endeavors, but you didn't talk about Signify. What, what, was, what were your thoughts behind Signify? You know, I migrated from a non-profit, well, first I migrated from GE to a very small non-for-profit organization, which we had created within the bosom of GE to manage programs like Bridges to Excellence, like Prometheus, because we're doing it on behalf of multiple employers. So I go from very large to small not-for-profit organization. We grew that, then merged it with another not-for-profit, and the merger didn't pan out for a, a variety of reasons. Because it's healthcare. <laughs> because it's healthcare. <laughs> exactly. And so I got lucky again because uh, as I uh, exited um, uh, Altarum, at the time, a company called Remedy Partners, which had been founded by Steve Wiggins to work exclusively in the Medicare bundle payment program, was really trying to figure out how to capitalize on all of the work they had done in the Medicare program uh, to expand it into the non-Medicare fee-for-service world. It just so happened that as I left Alterum, you know, a lot of my colleagues with whom I had worked on developing the Prometheus payment model also, you know, were trying to look for something else. And so we found this home together within Remedy and started building out all the capabilities and expand Remedy's work on uh, commercial episode of care payment programs. And, and so that enabled me and enabled my colleagues as well uh, to really go from this, you know, small not-for-profit world where you're always trying to make ends meet with, through a grant or something else to have a very focused energy and effort around really developing at scale and trying to make at work at scale, these bundle payment programs. And the perception has been for very long that you can't do bundles at scale, You can, or if you do them, you can only do them for a small number of procedural episodes. And we always knew that we could develop these programs across a variety of clinical conditions and procedures and make it work at scale, covering a, a large percentage of the total medical spend. So it was really exciting to be able to do that. Remedy eventually got recapitalized and controlled by a private equity firm who subsequently very quickly merged it with another portfolio company that they had that was called Signify and became uh, Signify Health. Uh, so just to give you a sense of the timeline associated to all of this, my colleagues and I joined Remedy at some point between June and August of 2018. In March 2019, so barely six to nine, eight months after that, recapitalization controlled by New Mountain Capital, new CEO, new CFO, new everything. Then fast forward about six to seven months, merger with Signify Health, new CEO, um, new company for all intents and purposes, because there were multiple parts to what was then the new Signify Health. COVID hits. And we go from massive activity of getting new customers through the door, contracts with providers, et cetera, to everyone frozen in space. Yeah. And uh, the company scrambles because the majority of the revenue from the then new Signify Health really came from in-home evaluations yeah. as part of contracts with Medicare Advantage plans. How do you do IHEs and home evaluations when you can't get into people's home because there's COVID? Yeah. Six months later, nine months later, uh, the company files to go public. 
And in yeah. February of 2021, the world, you know, comes back to its natural pace. We're actually growing our pipeline tremendously. And uh, a year later, CVS says, hey, this looks like an attractive acquisition. And bam, boom, and here we are. I learned, obviously, that there's a huge demand for alternative payment models. I learned that that demand today is mostly concentrated with managed care organizations that have risk lines of business. Those same plans are not interested at all in taking those models and bringing them into their self-insured book of business. But the demand is high on the purchaser side. The demand is very high on the provider side. So everyone who says physicians, practices don't really want risk, they don't want to share risk, they don't want to take on risk is 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 not true. It's patently false. We I learned the importance of conveners. And so I and I learned that we could do this at scale. So uh, even though the the history is that Signify blew up the episode of care program. It had nothing to do really with the business itself, more than the fact that it, that piece of what we were doing was not attractive to CVS Aetna. And so it was easier for Signify to flush it than you know post-acquisition. Yeah. Okay. If you've just tuned in, uh, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Francois DeBrant, Senior Partner of the High Value Care Incentives Advisory Group. Francois? What I'd like to pivot to now is to focus on what your view of where payment reform needs to go. My sense is that we have all of the pieces today in play somewhere in the United States. There is no perfect single model of payment. There are great models that can interplay with one another overlap, and I know that scares people, but they have to overlap. Overlap is a good thing, not a bad thing. And it is that overlapping, overlayering of different models that suit the different professionals, practices, organizations that actually creates a perfect model. So the perfect model is, I would say, is not a model, it's a framework within which clinicians participating in the specific practice an organization could be a single primary specialty, multi-specialty practice, health system, standalone facility, where all of these pieces have their place because they have a place in that continuum of care, but also have an arrangement, a financial risk arrangement that makes sense to them. And that's the big part of creating a perfect model or, or framework, I should say, is not trying to force everyone into a single model, which is what the feds have tried to do, but instead naturally recognizing that there's heterogeneity, make the best use of that heterogeneity because that's what frees up the creative juices of everyone and really allows all of the professionals in the industry to focus on what we want them to do, which is patient care and be rewarded for good outcomes. At Sonar, we don't have the same model in any two state plans. Just as you've said, we've had to remain very, very flexible. Uh, the health plans, though, are very concerned about this overlap. We constantly get into that discussion about they don't want to double pay for something. And that, that's where the problem with overlap comes from. How do you see payments for primary care? To me, the best way to, to reimburse primary care is a fixed monthly payment that has a very specific defined scope. And that scope is 
what you would want to see within an advanced primary care practice. And, and an APC, for all intents and purposes, is core primary care services, prevention, routine sick care, et cetera, with basic behavioral and mental care can be done not with degrees of clinicians with um, uh, uh, the right types of credentials and the base management of chronic care. In a commercially insured population, if you look at what actually gets spent around primary care as a percent of the total of a, of a medical plan, it's somewhere between five and 6%. In a Medicare population, it could be six and a half to seven and a half percent. That's about it. In an advanced primary care practice, when you're bringing in some management of mental health, behavioral health, some management of routine chronic conditions, again, think low acuity. You can you can kind of get to the edge of ten percent. A good framework is ten percent within that primary care payment, which can be a flat monthly fee, which allows the primary care physician to finally be unshackled from the visit based uh, payment. Figure out what clinicians and paraclinicians will make the best sense. It's easy. It's predictable. By the way, employers love it because it's predictable. I know how much I'm paying yeah. for this. And it's capped at about 10% of my total medical spend. From there, you go to specialty care. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's that's not predictable. Or maybe it is predictable that it's going to be high. But. The reality is once you get past that 10%, the other 70 to 80% of the medical spend is all around specialty. Now, that's that specialty care can be expressed as well, it's an acute medical event that requires, you know, specialty care, or it's more complex chronic care management, which requires the use of specialists. And there, the principles are, again, relatively simple and not that different from what you've done at Sonar, meaning that gastroenterologists manage gastro gastroenterology. <laughs> they don't manage obstetrics. And so you can't do total cost of care for specialty care because it's antithetical. And this has been the biggest hurdle in getting the feds to kind of get out of their own heads around everything's going to be total cost of care. Total cost of care doesn't work for specialty care. You have to repeat that, repeat it as a mantra. They tried it with oncology and the oncologists learned a lot. But as soon as they said, okay, we're going to take that model, which by the way, was total cost of care and convert it into a real risk-based model, all the oncologists said, no, because you got all kinds of junk in here. And we can only have control over cancer care. We're willing to take financial risk around cancer care. We're not going to take a risk around orthopedics. Yeah, that's just nuts. So it's not complicated. Again, the framework is simple, Larry. Primary care, 10%. Specialty care in its own zones. And you create a risk contract for what is included in gastroenterology, what is included in obstetrics, what is included in cardiology. Creating the limits around that isn't that difficult, you know. And yes, can there be overlap? Of course, because they're interactions. And a patient who has acute behavioral health, especially if it's alcohol-related, that's going to have an impact on you as the gastroenterologist. And so, yes, there's an overlap, but it doesn't mean that you can't manage that overlap. It just means you need some basic rules of accounting to manage the overlap. After you spoke at PTAC, I came away with the thought that to try to build a payment solution for gastroenterology 
we had to break out the gastroenterologists into their functional components. The great majority of gastroenterologists spend most of their time doing screening and surveillance colonoscopy, something that you could definitely bundle. Then there's those that are at the hospital taking care of acutely ill people, or it might be the same doctor in a different period of time. And those can be episodes. And then the chronic care management for the myriad of GI conditions that's going on in the office could be on a PMPM basis. Bingo. You take those conditions, IBD, reflux disease, you know, a few of the, those other things. Yes, it's not that complicated to say, I know how to, I know how to quantify the annual management clause for a patient who has GERD and then and then create some risk stratification. Ditto for IBD. If I'm an employer and I have a thousand patients who have those conditions and mixes of those conditions, you know, multiplying a thousand by a couple of ABCs, it's not Euclidean math. This right. <laughs> is like right. really simple math. So it's not difficult. And yes, you can convert it in a, into a PMPM. Now, I, for your listeners, I think this is important because people hear PMPM and they think, oh, I'm going to be capitated. No, it's a it's per patient. So it's not an actuarially derived number. I'm not going to assume I have a thousand patients. If this year as an employee, I have a thousand patients, you get a thousand times the PMPM. If I end up by having a thousand twenty during the course of the year, then you'll get a thousand twenty PMPMs. And that PMPM isn't again some actuarially defined number. It's a function of how much does it cost to manage IBD versus how much for GERD versus how much for something else. And you case mix adjusted. And, you know, this, this is giving you the money, just like in primary care, giving you the money that you need to manage those patients and allowing you the freedom to manage them however which way you want with two very specific pieces that constrain you to making sure that you're doing the right job. If one of those patients end up in the ED, or in the hospital because they have an acute event that's related to, that's going to count against your budget. Your vested interest to make sure that they don't end up in with, with any acute exacerbation. You don't treat them well enough, they're going to be sequela that are also going to count on it. So don't worry about overuse or underuse. I mean, I think we can get this right. And at that point, again, if you want to do a telehealth visit or an email or send a nurse, whatever it is that you want to do, as the managing physician in your practice, knock yourself out and you don't have to worry about what CPT code am I going to have to use. Get out of that freaking discussion of RVUs and CPT codes and focus on what you want to focus on. In your model, you're not carving. I will remember forever, total cost of care models do not work for specialty care. So what you're suggesting is that these models need to be nested within a larger uh, risk-based and, and that's and that's the last layer, right? Because there, look, there's a it, there's there's always going to be a percentage that's going to be very very difficult to sign the correct way, or there are things that happen that just you know don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense, and some of that overlap is also difficult to always account for in the right way in every single bucket. So everyone gets also included in a total cost of care pool, meaning, you know, as you're managing the IBD of the patient uh, or their esophageal reflux disease, that that patient is also being managed for their combination of mental and behavioral health. But you're not doing it. Your colleague or you know someone across the street is doing it. But both of you are fully aware of the interaction and the fact that if you collectively do a good job, then the total cost for that patient will go down. 
and you'll both benefit from that. So there's a message across all of this that says, yes, having some incentive to keep your eye on the ball uh, of the overall ball makes sense. I'm going to make a quick analogy for your listeners to what happens in the, 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 the compensation packages that work really well in most companies is a blended compensation model in which the individual has its, his or her own targets, performance, and the, and, and the majority of their comp is, is focused on that. Then there's a piece on their division, and there's always a piece on the whole company, always a piece on the whole company, because you want people to also think about their neighbors. And if an opportunity comes across and, oh my gosh, this could benefit the company and I'm gonna send it to my colleague who's even a, a country away or a continent away, I'm gonna do it because it's good for the company. And here, you know, substitute patient to company. So it's good for the patient, so I'm gonna do it. And colleague to, you know, the other, the, instead of the division being um, uh, aircraft engines versus appliances, it's gastroenterology and oncology or gastroenterology and behavioral health. That's really the, I mean, this isn't complicated. It's being done in every single company and done incredibly well. So there are models, that's what I'm saying. It's a framework that people understand resonates. And the only reason we haven't been able to do it yet in healthcare is because A, the health plans have antiquated systems and don't want to update them. And on the federal side- It's like pushing on a glacier to try to move it. <laughs> it's trying to convince, sometimes I, 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 I almost feel like it's trying to convince people who think the earth is flat that it isn't actually flat. <laughs> Listen, Francois, I, you, you mentioned a term er, earlier, and I want to close with your, your comments on it. You talked about convener. Yeah. And I, I'd love you to just expand a little bit on what your concept of a convener is. Yeah. And to me, this this conveners and the emergence of conveners, um, you know, I hate to use the word game changer because it's so overused. But I do believe that in this instance, it's a it's an appropriate um, qualifier for what a convener is because it has it creates the opportunity for employers in particular to much more rapidly develop networks of high performing practices centered around these you know, specialties and and i think it also helps and facilitates contracting and risk contracting so to me a convener is an organization that can take financial risk can manage that risk in collaboration with the practices that it has convened under its umbrella. It can empower those practices, diffuse rapidly uh, best practices around patient management, et cetera, rapid feedback loops for improvement, right? But it becomes an accountable entity, right? But instead of being total cost of care, it's really focused on, on a specialty. So conveners have been an innovation over the past decade introduced by the Fed, so give them credit where it's due, uh, because of the Medicare bundle payment program. No one knew what a convener was before the Medicare bundle payment program. And since then, private equity has really understood the power of the convener in assembling independent practices under an umbrella and focusing care uh, transformation and financial uh, risk management. So I, I, I applaud those efforts. I'm, I see them grow and I think they will bring about real innovation in, in, in network management and network development. Thank you, Francois. And thanks to the audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com. Be sure to lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. 
be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and patients together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.